The last few weeks we've been looking, if you have been here you know, and if you have not, you will now know, at this notion we're calling the being catechized by affliction, being taught by our troubles, this whole idea of how we meet up in our lives with various kinds of aggravations, sufferings, hardships, difficulties, deprivations, all the sorts of things that we do not want and we spend our lives frantically trying to prevent ourselves from having and reckoning with them as a critical part of a life that God intends for us. And what we're doing is we're trying to learn, as John Newton said, the happy art of extracting real good out of apparent evil. We're learning the happy art of extracting real good out of apparent evil, and we continue that today as we listen to Jesus and his conversation with Peter after telling him and the disciples that suffering was part of his future. When he'd gone to the palm reader, it showed up that bad things were in store for him, and this was... An intolerable prospect for Peter. Steve Brown, one of my professors, used to say, one of Hutch's professors used to say, and Lisa Cowart reminded us of this in our small group the other night. He used to say, anytime a Christian, or anytime a pagan, or someone who doesn't give God the time of day, makes no room in his thoughts for God or her thoughts for God, anytime someone like that gets cancer, A Christian gets cancer just to show the world the difference. Anytime a pagan, he would say, loses her job, a Christian loses her job just so God can show the world the difference. There's a story in the Gospels where a man is brought to Jesus. This man can't see. His eyes don't work right. And as everybody knows... Obviously, the reason he can't see is that somebody somewhere did something that wasn't so good. And so these Pharisees say to Jesus, Who was it that sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because as we all know, if you do good, good's going to happen to you. And if you do bad, then bad's going to happen to you, right? It's the cosmic police code. Well, Jesus responds to these fellows when they're asking about the blindness of this man. Who sinned, him or his parents? And he says, well, actually, it was his dad. He's got a drinking problem, he's very harsh with the wife, he's addicted to pornography, so I decided I'd strike his kid with blindness. Now, if you know the Bible at all, you know that I just made up a story. He does not say that. He says, in fact, neither. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but this man was born in this situation so that the glory of God could be demonstrated in his life. This man was born in a state of having his eyes not work right, this state of being deprived of the the light of all the wonders of God in order that the very wonders of God could be magnified in his life. As Soren Kierkegaard said, God always creates out of nothing. And so often he has to reduce us to nothing in order to create something out of us. And Jesus says something very much the same effect as he's talking to Peter here today is he's giving us insight into the kind of life that he means for us to have. 
If we're going to be able to have skill at the happy art of extracting good out of apparent evil, we have to get this teaching of Jesus embedded into our hearts and noodles. Just before Jesus says this to Peter, Peter has had the good fortune of having God give him a sneak peek into a revelation that nobody anywhere had yet figured out. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, no, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you're, you're God's rescue man. You're the king who's come to fix all that's broken. You're the one who's meant to effect reversal. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for you didn't figure this out on your own and you didn't read it on the internet. God revealed it to you. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. So Peter is in a very privileged position. God's been whispering secrets from heaven into his ears. And so it makes it particularly stunning that just a few days later, from that time on, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what his messianic career, what his savior living is going to look like. He explains to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter is hearing this. We know the story, so it's not that shocking to us, but it's shocking to Peter. Because Peter thinks he should be hearing this story. I'm going to come into Jerusalem. I'm going to wipe my shoes with the Romans. I'm going to show everybody how muscular I am. I'm going to establish great national security for the Jews. Everybody's going to be rich. Everybody's going to have enough wine. It's going to be fantastic. And everybody's going to know that the Jews are God's people and I'm God's man. That's what Peter hoped to hear. That's what he had come to expect. And Jesus said, I'm going to get the tar knocked out of me. I'm going to sit on a cross with my lip split and my back filleted, naked, rejected. The very people I've come to save, mocking me, hurling insults at me, spitting on me, having no time or place or room for me. And Peter you can understand, says, no, this can't happen to you. He loves him. He knows who he is. This can't happen to you. And Jesus, in a way that you would probably get onto your children if they called one another this, says, silence yourself, Satan. Do you let your kids call each other Satan? You might call him Satan sometimes. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the things of God, you are only thinking in terms of the things of men. And I want to stop right there because that is a critical element in being able to flourish with the happy art of extracting good out of apparent evil. Is you've got to recalibrate your thinking in the midst of suffering. You've got to recalibrate your thinking every day 
And recognizing that it isn't just the things of men, it isn't just the things that are common to all of us that we must think about, there's a perspective that's bigger than ours. There's a bigger story that God is weaving that we are not always privy to being able to see and we certainly don't always understand. But it has to be taken into effect if we're going to be able to endure the suffering that's been entrusted to us. It's the only way that you could say things like, Maybe in this sickness, God will somehow be glorified. Maybe in this treachery, somehow there will be reversal. Maybe in this evil, somehow, something pretty doggone good will come. Jesus says, you do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. You know, a lot of us, we may not realize it, Because most of us in here are people who are in some version or another walking with God. We have some amount of wanting to give God the time of day, some amount of wanting to listen to Him in our lives, being connected to Him in relationship. But one of the things that we do not often realize is that when it comes to our relationship with God, we're often often deeply committed to our version of what the future should look like. And therefore, it makes us pretty filled up with the things of men. Because our vision of the future doesn't normally, for instance, involve the spreading of God's fame. It normally involves the spreading of, say, our fame. And our vision of the future involves everybody we know and love being happy. Eating a lot of candy and steaks and drinking cold beers, and nobody having unemployment issues, and everybody loving what they do, our version of the future doesn't involve any sort of sickness or any sort of deprivation. We can't imagine how any kind of loss or giving up or injustice or abandonment or isolation or alienation or pain or crime or torture, the things that make up the data of the daily news and many people's lives. We can't imagine how any of that can have any purposeful role in our lives. But Jesus can say it does have a role because if you're thinking larger, you realize that God likes to shame the wisdom of the wise. He likes to trip people up and show them that he likes to deal with one hand behind his back, that he's, he's got a whole different economy than we're inclined to think. But it's his plan, not ours. It's his version of the future, not ours, that gets to be enacted. And so if you're only thinking of how to get your wishes enacted on this planet, you might be a person who prays a lot. But you might be a person who's really bitter or really anxious are really fearful because you know why? When you pray, you'll be praying for the enactment, I've done this a whole lot, for the enactment of your version of the future. And then when God doesn't come through with it, when things go badly, when things go sour, you know what you'll do? You'll blame Him. You'll say, we had a deal! There was a Seinfeld episode many years ago where the admirable character George Costanza, a man of great integrity and ambition, righteousness, deeply etched character. George is driving down the road with his girlfriend, and as he comes along the road, there's a pigeon in the road. 
And George, like all good drivers, knows that eventually that pigeon is going to fly off while he continues to drive, only this time it doesn't. And so George runs over the pigeon, kills it dead with his car. This, this severs the relationship between him and the girl because who wants to date a guy who's going to kill a poor little pigeon with his car? George is seen as cool and mean, and George is irate. For the rest of the show, he continues to say, but we had a deal, we and the pigeons. We let them coexist with us, and when we drive, they fly away just in the nick of time. He did not obey the deal. He didn't uphold his end of the bargain. And I always think of that. I think it's hilarious. But I always think of that, that when we think about ourselves, we don't really maybe consciously do this. But in our minds, we have all these kind of deals that we're cutting with God. Here, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church some, give some money, help some people, be nice to my spouse, and you make things go good for me. What do you say? And then when God doesn't make things go for good for you, or something doesn't turn out the way you want it to, even if you remain a polite person on the outside, inwardly you're saying, but we had a deal. That's why you turn away from God sometimes in sorrow, because you think you had a deal. And the deal involved God revolving His world around you. And my deals with Him involve Him revolving it around me. But Jesus is saying, if you only have in mind the things of men, then that's how small your world will be. It'll be just as small as you are. But if you start getting a bigger picture and realize God is up to things, so that when one Nazarene man in first century Palestine gets the tar beaten out of him, doesn't have a place to lay his head, is rejected by all the people who love him despite all his miracles, is the victim of the worst injustice ever, that that is God's plan, not just for that time and that day, but in the apparent travesty of all that, God is working out the healing of the entire world for the rest of forever. Because he has in mind a lot bigger things than you do. A lot bigger dreams than you do. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must then deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus knows that when we have in mind only the things of men, then the things that are common in terms of ambition and desire for everybody else will become the main thing for us. And so you know what he does? We who want desperately to be very athletic or very beautiful or to have a big house or a very nice job or to have very lovely children or we've got to find a wife we've got to find a husband we got to get in the right grad school these become the main things for us keeping everybody well keeping everybody happy they become the main things for us because we only have in mind the things of men and so what God does sometimes is he lets the bottom fall out. See, because 
As C.S. Lewis once said, if there is anything left that's desirable about our lives, most of us are not going to take up our cross and follow. Most of us are not going to surrender our lives to God if there's anything about our lives that happens to be desirable. So God will sometimes put you in the position where you realize, as people do, when you're hugging a toilet with nausea, it doesn't matter if that toilet's an outhouse toilet or if it's made of pure gold. Your life stinks. And if you're pinned, nailed to a bed with cancer, it doesn't matter if the home that you're not in at the moment is a million-dollar home or if it's a $10,000 mobile home. There's nothing desirable about your life at that moment. There's nothing about your life at that moment that your money can fix or that your intelligence can fix, that your wisdom or your looks or your accomplishments can fix. And so sometimes God, because He loves us, because His dreams for your life are bigger than your dreams for your life, because He's got a vision for the whole rest of forever, He might put you in a position, I don't like this, just describing it, where you realize, I've got to give my life up to Him. This is no life. I've got to call on Him. I've got to entrust myself to Him. And often it's suffering that reveals to us the main thing about our lives that is not clear to us unless we're suffering. You know, this is some of the reasons some of you, I've noticed this. Uh, one time a, a, an author said, too much prayer or too little prayer can be signs of unbelief. And you think, that's an interesting thing. But I'm a nervous guy and I pray a lot. And I think, I've realized that sometimes what can happen when you pray is that prayer can make you more anxious. And you can think to yourself, has that ever happened to you? You start praying about a lot of stuff and you get anxious and you think, I, need to, I didn't cover my bases right, I didn't get it exact enough. And you start thinking, wait a second, wait a second, didn't Paul say present your request to God? The peace of God transcends all our saying, guard your heart and mind, Christ Jesus, blah, blah, blah. and you, you know the memory verse, you know you're supposed to have some kind of peace, but all of a sudden you're a nervous wreck. You've been praying. Well, that anxiety is just an indication that you're really hanging on tight to a certain vision of the future. The only one that is acceptable. Because the way you get peace is you give up your life. You give up your rights to the future. You succumb to the wisdom of the God who was actively working to bring you into His pleasure before you ever thought of Him. You're saying, I'm going to not grumble or work against your government of the world, I'm going to succumb to it. And Jesus said, I guarantee if you do that, you'll know happiness. I guarantee if you don't white knuckle and try to hang on to everything, and you let go, and you trust me with it, you'll be surprised. If you give up your life in that respect, you're going to find it. But the more you try to hang on to it, the more narrow it's going to get, the more constricted it's going to get, the more joyless it's going to get, the more suffocated you're going to feel, and the more resentful you're going to feel towards this God who is not making things come true the way you think they ought to, the way I think they ought to. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, which if you want to be inspired to pray and not guilted into it, you will read. It's a great book. It gives this incredible example it's always been stirring to me. He says, there are two ways to get things done in the world. Your self-will, this me having a vision of the future that I want to enact, or prayer. At the center of self-will, he says, is me carving a world in my image. 
But at the center of prayer is God carving me into the Son's image. Jesus tells Peter, you don't have in mind the things of men, but the things of God. It's possible that for us, a lot of us, the very things that make us most successful, that get us the most acclaim, that get us the most riches, the most kudos and praise and comforts in the world, are the things that might make it hardest for us to enjoy God. They work at cross-purposes sometimes. That's why it's really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. Rich people have the hardest time. If you're used to, in your daily life, being able to command people, you make make a call, if there's something that's not right, you call somebody who's in charge, I'll just make a call, Bob. You make the call, I'll just make a call, Sally, I'll get this fixed right up. You write a check. If you're accustomed to be able to make the future like you want it, It's very hard to succumb to anybody else's version of it. It's very hard to submit to the will of another. Very, very hard. But here's a more mundane example. He says this. Imagine Sue, fictitious Sue. All the names I use are fictitious, so if you happen to have that name, I'm not meaning you. Imagine that Sue's husband, Joe, takes out the trash every Tuesday. It's his job! Last week, he forgot to take it out. I have read that this has happened before. Someone has forgotten to take out the trash. And then again this week. Never in our house. He's usually good about taking out the trash, but Sue tells him, Honey, honey, you forgot to take out the trash again. She says again with emphasis and more than a little irritation. I like that. You know what he starts to wonder, though? He says, what's going on in Sue at that moment when she feels like she's got to let her husband have it because he's forgotten to take out the trash? There is a part of her that imagines on the whole planet Earth that that husband of hers will never, under any circumstances, ever come into contact with his shortcomings, his failings, his sins, his mediocrities, his idiosyncrasies, unless she is the one who tells him. She has the burden of being the revealer of all things true and bad about him to him. And so she feels burdened. She feels bitter. And even if she prays, the prayer is going to be an exasperated prayer. Make him help me! And if he won't do it, She's just going to be mad at her husband and mad at God. And he says, and it never occurs to her, what if God wants her to have to take out the trash for the rest of her life? What would happen if she just sort of relinquished control of this concern to the king of the whole universe? And he says this wonderful thing. She doesn't know. She doesn't know what would happen. And that's the thing. That's the terror of it. We think, if I relinquish control of my children, of my marriage, of my health, of the world, of my job, to this king, what's going to happen? And the answer is, we don't know. Except that he said it's going to be good. That no matter what happens, it's going to be converted to good. That no matter what happens, it's going to be performed and choreographed and superintended by one who came to seek and to save you when you were flipping him off. 
That's the one who's acting in history for the good of his people that says you've got to give up your life if you want to find it. You've got to deny yourself to follow me. But it's difficult. Because every time you want to follow Jesus, that means you've got to obey him. That means you've got to say your word is more important than my word. And what's particularly painful about that, as the, as the preacher man and Moby Dick pointed out, is that any time we're going to obey God, we have to disobey ourselves. And that's no fun. Who likes to disobey themselves? We have desires. We like to honor them. We have wishes. We like to try to make them come true. And all of us, all of us, to some extent or another, there are parts of us that we hold back because we know, if I let God in on this, he's going to send me to some remote village on the Amazon River. I'm going to go live in a tree hut somewhere. He's going to take all kinds of things away from me if I really succumb to him and let him have access to my life. And so you try to hang on to your life more and it gets more and more smothery. Your life's on loan from him. His summons is this, follow me. Obey me, says Jesus. It's very hard. It's very hard to live a divided life. And that's how a lot of us are trying to live. There's a part of us, because the Spirit of God is in us, that makes us want to love God. There's another part of us that's trying to hang on to life as we know it, the way we know it, because we're convinced that our version of the future is better. And we're at cross purposes with ourselves. It's, it's horrible, really. It makes devotion very difficult. It makes joy very difficult. It makes fear and anxiety and resentment very easy. But the calling for us is what I heard one of our deacons when he was being interviewed and telling his testimony once. He said it this way, and it's always stuck with me. I think it's so beautiful. He talked about having gotten distance between him and God, running after his own ways. And at some point, he was out in the woods and he felt the hound of heaven after him. The one who came to seek and to save what was lost, whose summons to follow came after him and he knew that he couldn't escape and he didn't anymore want to escape. He had tried escape and it wasn't very escapey. It wasn't the pleasure that he thought it might be. And he said, so right there and then in those woods, I love this expression, I gave up to God. I gave up to God is what he said. And I've always heard that expression and I think, you know, that's the same thing people say in other faith traditionally talk about surrendering to God. We just sang about that. We did in the Little Lake service, I can't remember which. But gave up to God. But what Jesus is calling us to do here is not just to do that the first day when you become saved. When you say, Jesus, I have to entrust my life to you. I can't, I can't be good enough on my own. So I need you to cover me in your righteousness. I can't pay off my own sins, so I need you to pay off my own sins. I don't know how to manage my life. It's too much for me. I need you to be king and lord of my life. It's not just the thing you do one time. It's the thing you do every single day. 
That's why the psalmist says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Because every single one of us in here has got a divided heart. The least conflicted people in here have an undivided heart. And the way to have that is either just to do whatever you want, and that's the, way, the shortest term way of happiness, just don't bother with anybody. Do whatever you want. Forget about God. In the short term, that's the best way. Jesus said, the Son of Man's going to come, then there will be judgment, which will make that a very bad way. Because you're going to have to stand before Him to be inspected. And how are you going to pass the inspection if you don't have someone whose righteousness covers you? If you don't have someone who's so benevolently inclined towards you, He says, in another place, even if you give a cup of water to one of these little ones of mine, you won't lose your reward. He's going to give rewards for giving cups of water? Oh, he's so much better than you think. Everyone who's in him will have their sins obliterated, their shame covered, the righteousness required by God fulfilled. And he says, you've got to seek me and not your own way. Day after day. C.S. Lewis says that's why the struggle of the Christian life comes when we least expect it. It comes when you wake up in the morning and all your desires come rushing at you like wild animals. All the things you want to do. All the things you need to get done. All the things you think are important. All the things that you're worried about. And he says part of following Christ is pushing back all those strong and stringent voices and learning to let that smaller, quieter, stronger voice in. You're following the shepherd who says, you shall not want. I restore your soul. I lead you beside quiet waters. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, death, you won't have to fear because you've got me. And so Jesus says you can pursue me. If you want to find life, that's the only way. You've got to give up to God. Most of us are trying to seek the things we think are most important and asking God to bless those efforts. And that's a little bit like an artist saying, I really like to be original. I'm going to try to come up with an original song. That's really like someone who's trying to get to sleep saying, I'm going to try really hard to get to sleep. Or somebody who wants to have a good conversation say, I'm going to have really hard. Let us have a conversation. Someone who's trying to get happy, trying really hard to get happy. Without realizing there is a paradox at work in the whole universe. Then all those things, you don't get original, says C.S. Lewis, by trying to be original. You get original by telling the truth as you see it. Then by accident, you'll be original. One talks best when one doesn't sit down to say, let us converse. You get to sleep best, not by trying to get to sleep, by not trying to get to sleep. And I have not met anybody who got happy when they were just pursuing happiness. It always runs away. It's a sneaky little fella. And Jesus said, ain't nobody ever gotten a life trying to make their own. If you want to find it, you have to give up to God. Some of you today need to do that for the first time. You need to get your sins chucked into the sea. You need to hear God saying, Welcome home, I'm glad. And some of you, like me, need to make it our daily practice to give up 
to say, I'm not going to grumble against your government because you are good. You know what life is for me. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Amen.